0: Earth Earth to humans.
1: Earth to humans. Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Matt Podolsky. I am joined here by senior producer Serena Simons. How are you, Serena? Hey,
2: Matt. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? i'm doing good hanging doing in there good. i know it's like yeah. our,
1: the octave of our voice goes higher like the more we're bullshitting
2: right it's like i'm
1: great that's for sure i know right why are we talking about how great we are
2: <laughs> no to be real i was I, I was telling you like i broke three toes night before last so i mean that's that's what's actually going on with me but other than that i mean honestly can't complain gotcha sorry about your toes thanks that's okay Ball. it's okay yeah
1: <laughs> Well, we're here today uh, to introduce our guest for today's episode of the podcast, Munir Varani. And this is, uh, Serena, you asked me to give the introduction for this one because uh, Munir is is somebody who I've known for the last 10 years. I had this really amazing opportunity 10 years ago to travel to Kenya and volunteer on a vulture research project and to assist in putting uh, GPS transmitters on vultures in the Masai Mara National Reserve in Kenya. And um, that was a project that Munir was involved with at the time. Um, So it was really awesome to, to, um, to reconnect with him and to get updates on all of these projects that he has going on. I just really appreciate Munir as a person, and
2: his perspective. Um, you know, coming from a really multicultural background, having a lot of respect for different kinds of communities, and and using that experience to really create meaningful, holistic community building. Um, you know, is very inspiring, and I think it's inspiring to um, folks that have been on the margins of you know environmental issues. Um, and, and just, you know, I, I just think that we need more Munir's in the world and I'm just so appreciative of people like him and, um, you know, yeah, just, just taking a win when we, when we see it and, and celebrating it, uplifting it and telling everyone about it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the Munir talks in, in this interview, he talks a lot about the importance of building trust. Mm-hmm with local communities and with indigenous communities um and he's been working specifically with the with um with a, a number of different Maasai communities all throughout um this portion of uh southern kenya and northern tanzania and the Maasai have been some of the most outspoken you know speaking out against um the forced removal mm-hmm. of their people mm-hmm. from the Maasai Mara and the Serengeti national park areas. Right. So like coming in and, and trying to build trust as a representative of a conservation uh, of an international conservation organization, like is not an easy task. Right. Um, And so it just speaks to their, their commitment to the work and their commitment to the process of we're not going to have success unless we build trust.
2: I am really glad that you had this conversation with him. It's an awesome episode um, and I think everyone's just going
1: to fall in love with Munir by the end of it. Before we dive into our conversation with Munir, I'm going to share a quick update on one of the projects that we're co-producing here at the Wildlands Collective. Part of our inspiration for featuring Munir Varani in this episode came from Wild Lens Collective member, Greg Mercer, who along with his team members, Taylor Peterson and Pat Bradley, are producing a new animated series called Chronicles of the Curious.
2: Chronicles of the Curious is an animated storytelling series that spotlights individuals who work or play in STEM and STEAM related fields.
0: It's like sitting down with a scientist at a coffee shop and having them show you the meandering path they took to get to where they are today.
1: And it will be Munir's story that is featured in the pilot episode of this new series.
0: When Munir shared the moment he discovered his passion for birds of prey, we knew we'd found the perfect story for our pilot.
1: Check out our show notes page for this episode at wildlensinc.org eth225 to learn more about Chronicles of the Curious, or go to chroniclesofthecurious.org.
0: So my name is Munir Varani, and I'm currently the executive vice president for the Peregrine Fund World Center for Birds of Prey, based here in Boise, Idaho.
1: I ask a lot of folks who come onto our podcast this question of like, if you can trace the seed of your interest in wildlife
0: and conservation and the natural
1: world, like back to its earliest moment.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I I think my earliest memories... Was when I was in kindergarten, and I remember my mom coming to tell me that my teacher had contacted her and said Munir is not attending class. He's like he's outdoors, and the the kindergarten I attended had a little what they called a an animal zoo where they had ducks, they had geese, they had rabbits. Um, I I recall they had a pet ostrich as well, and I just spent I you know i was probably 5 or 4 years old and i would just walk out of the class uh you know not a worry in my mind and i would just stare at these animals then just completely focused on them just you know mesmerized by their behavior and trying to understand what made them different you know to who i was as a child so i think if i would pinpoint you know that would kind of be the earliest memory i had I'm a third-generation Kenyan. I was born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya. My grandfather was born in Bombay, in India, and came to Kenya when he was probably around seven years old. There was a big um, exodus of people from the Indian subcontinent once the railway was built. Uh, Many Indians came out to Kenya uh, before independence in Kenya to start off businesses in trade and commerce. Uh, So, you know, as a third generation Kenyan, I was very fortunate to have grown up in Nairobi, uh, you know, where you would drive to the airport, for example, and you'd have to stop because there were these herds of giraffe crossing the road at that time. So, you know, we were very fortunate to have grown up at a time where even if you went outside Nairobi, you know, towards the coastal uh, resort of Mombasa, you'd have to stop on the road. I recall vividly as a 10 or 11 year old My dad stopping the car, getting out of the car with his tiny little Kodak, you know, camera. And there were herds of probably three to four hundred elephants just crossing the road. You know, growing up in the city of Nairobi uh, as a teenager, um, you know, the city grew very rapidly. Lots of people, lots of cars, lots of buildings, lots of development. Uh, We were very fortunate in that Nairobi National Park was only about five miles outside the city. And this little gem of a park, which is only about 100 square miles, had virtually every single animal that's found in East Africa, except, of course, elephants, because it was, it was way too small. So we spent many a time, you know, I, I didn't even have my driver's license, and I would, my brothers and I would get in the car, you know, carry a flask of tea and just get into the park and find lions or leopards. Uh, there was a good population of cheetahs as well, and just watch them and observe them. You know, I think we were very spoiled in that, in that regard because there were giraffes, you know, there were migratory herds of wildebeest. Um, but as I grew up in Kenya, you know, cricket, the sport of cricket was my primary passion, and I, and I ended up playing for one of the premier cricket leagues, uh, cricket teams in Nairobi. And I was also very fortunate because there were people, uh, mentors in that cricket team of mine. Uh, one in particular, Hitesh Mehta, who was very passionate about wildlife and he organized these trips with the cricket team, you know, the youngsters, uh, where if we were playing you know, outside Nairobi in Mombasa, we would go on a camping trip. And you know, he would inspire us around the campfire with stories and everything. Also, every time we won a cricket tournament, for example, like a knockout or, you know, a major cup, one of our supporters would just say, hey, why don't you go spend a weekend uh, at my resort at Masai Mara or Amboseli? I mean, these were the premier wildlife areas in Kenya. So off we went, you know, an all-expense-paid trip uh, to celebrate our victory. And there we were watching elephant and rhino and all these birds, and it was just magical. And it was around that time where I began to think that, you know, this is this is something that's fun. And I you know, it's something I'd like to do for the rest of my life. Because just getting in that car, driving around, taking photographs was extremely rewarding just to see all these animals um, just around you.
1: You're you're sort of talking about this period in your early adult life where cricket was your primary passion, but you were also starting to think about like, well, what do I do after this? Like what is you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life, right? Like, what's my career, if, if not cricket? Was there a moment where
0: those ideas started to coalesce? There was, there was. And I was, uh, so I got a job immediately, I finished my high school. I got a job in a bank where I was a senior clerk, you know, and this was waiting to go to college. Um, And I was out there, you know, I had to wear a tie and a suit every single day and meet customers and clients. And I hated every single moment because I was indoors. I was not outdoors. They were paying me all this money. um, And I just like I I just didn't didn't like it. So I quit. Uh, I started traveling on my own. I got on buses. I wrote little articles about my travel, you know, within Kenya. Um, and then when I got to university, I was in my final year and I was selected to play in the Cricket World Cup for Kenya against Holland, you know, in Holland in, in the early 1990s. And I went off to my dean and I was, you know, I went up to him and I said, uh, excuse me, sir, I've been selected to play cricket for Kenya. Could you um, reschedule my exams? And he looked at me in the eye and he said, who do you think you are? And at that moment, you know, I looked at him and I felt, you know, I'm not really sure what he's saying, but he was making it very clear that either you focus on your studies or you play cricket. And it's one of those decisions that somebody makes on your behalf that changes your life for the better. So, you know, it was at that point, I, I, I had a long, hard think about it. And I decided that, you know, cricket was a short-lived, you know, it was great whilst it lasted, but I did need a career. And so in my final year, when I was taking zoology, I was focusing on a career in research, in conservation research, you know, looking at, imagining myself in either Maasai Mara or Amboseli doing research on elephants or rhinos or, you know, some of the big charismatic megafauna. So I was, you know, in my final year and just finished my exams. I was very blessed with some tremendous professors, uh, Dr. Ian Gordon, one of them, he taught us evolutionary biology. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, so what are you going to do after this? Um, And, you, you know, we were contemplating many things. We thought about elephant research, rhino research. I'd already gone to visit people at Kenya Wildlife Services, you know, to see what I could do. And, you know, they just kept pushing me off from one office to the next to the next. And I knew... This was not going to get anywhere. And then Dr. Gordon said, Hey, Munir, you know, there's a... Why don't you go to the museum and go meet Dr. Leon Benin because they may have something for you to do uh, working on owls. And that was the last thing on my head because, you know, if, considering I, would, I I, had set myself up for working on the charismatic megafauna, I didn't really want to work on owls. But off I went to the museum. You know, I checked out with, with Leon. He looked at me and he said... Uh, there's this organization called the Peregrine Fund, and they've set aside a grant for a Kenyan student to train as a raptor biologist. Would you be interested? And I told him, well, I need to think about it, you know, because I was, I was heading off for another cricket tour to India. And so, I, I, you know, I wanted to think about it. Um, and he said, well, if you're you serious, why don't you meet me down in Watamu, which is the coastal town close to this tremendous little forest called the Arabu Kosokoki Forest, in coastal Kenya, where this endemic and tiny little owl uh, resides. I spoke with my dad, and he, you know, somehow managed to get me a free ticket to go to Mombasa uh, and down to the coast. And so off I went, and Leon was, you know, they they were actually quite impressed that I'd gone all out of my way, made the effort to fly over there. So I looked at that uh, owl, I, lo- you know, I, the, the minute I looked at that owl, We were on our hands and knees crawling in this forest at about eight o'clock at night with David Gala who's a champion for that forest and he shines this torch on this tiny little owl and I was just completely mesmerized so I got back to Kenya uh, sorry to Nairobi and I was introduced to the legendary Simon Thompson and Simon took one look at me saw me in my cricket sweater and said I think you must be lost You know, because there's no cricket field over here. And, you know, Simon and I, we have a great relationship. You know, we are friends nearly 30 years now. He's the most amazing person I know, probably the most knowledgeable field biologist I know. Uh, He took me, you know, he told me, come over to my ranch. You know, we'll talk about raptors and and, and biology. Uh, He was employed by the Peregrine Fund at that time to set up the Kenya project. Uh, He had a facility down in Athi River where he had uh, a large collection of birds of prey, a lot of birds that were either injured um, or, you know, they, they had to be taken in a- from areas, otherwise they would have been killed. Um, so, you know, I've, I visited his place. We had a fantastic time. He took me out to catch an ogre buzzard. Uh, and that's the story that I told Greg. You know, he says, let's go catch a bird. We, we sit in his little tiny four-wheel drive Suzuki. He chucks out this trap catch this auger buzzard, and literally within 30 seconds this bird is on the trap he spins the car comes you know screeching towards it and the car is still going he dives out does the somersault uh picks this bird up and i you know i realize i have to stop this car so you know i i get onto his seat slam onto the brakes and drive the car to him and he hands me this beautiful little bird with the most amazing red tail and i hold it in my hand and it's like holding a baby and you know, that was the moment where I just knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
1: Am I m- remembering correctly that, w- was it the auger buzzard that was the focus of your graduate research?
0: Correct, yes. So I yes. did, my, my master's study was focused on the endemic uh, Sokoki scops owl, which is the tiniest owl in Africa, found only within uh, the coastal forest in Arabuka Sokoki forest. Uh, So that was a pioneer study where I looked at the species' density, its abundance, its calling patterns. Uh, We managed to trap a few birds to put transmitters on them to determine and establish their home range, look at what the birds were feeding on. Um, And then, you know, through the Peregrine Fund, uh, the Earthwatch Institute and the Aga Khan Foundation, I managed to get multiple scholarships to enable me to go to graduate school, uh, which was at the University of Leicester. Uh, to understand the, the ecology and biology of the auger buzzard, which is a species that's very closely related to the red-tailed hawk. Uh, this species is only found, well, it's found in sort of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it's a bird that is associated with farmlands. You know, it does well, it feeds mainly on rodents, but it also feeds on snakes, on other birds and everything. It's just a beautiful bird, and every time you see it, um, you know, you just you, you just get a warm feeling because the, the Kikuyu ethnic group in Kenya believe that when you see the white chest of an auger buzzard in the morning, uh, it just augurs well and it, you know, there's good tidings will come your way.
1: So there's a lot of, you know, a a, a lot of connections to the Peregrine Fund in in, in the early part of your career. Um, And obviously you went on to to work for the Peregrine Fund and and have built your career within this organization. I mean, uh, at at what point did you start like officially working for the Peregrine Fund uh, after you completed your graduate work? In
0: 1998, I was in the process of writing up my graduate studies on the Augur Buzzard. Uh, and there was a conference that was organized uh, by the World Working Group of Birds of Prey and Owls that took place in Midrand in South Africa in August. Uh, I was fortunate to have been given a, a travel award to present some of my work at this conference. Um, and there I was in August of 1998, and you know, standing, I remember one particular moment during one of the coffee breaks, And I'm standing there around me, surrounded by big names like, you know, Professor Ian Newton, uh, Peter Mundy, Dr. Patrick Benson, um, you know, all these big names that you only read about, right? Uh, Dr. Ellen Kemp, um, Stephen Piper. I mean, these were legends in their own, our legends in their own right. And I stood there and I just, I I almost felt like I was looking up in the sky because, you know, these were just... um, incredible people I just felt their energy rub through me Um, I presented a number of papers at that conference and I got back to Kenya um, after that and I received a letter in the mail that you know uh, offered me uh, a position as the research biologist for Africa so I was very fortunate Uh, obviously I jumped at that position because you know everybody wants to work for the peregrine fund um, and it's just it was just a fantastic opportunity but what happened is as soon as I completed my graduate studies, I got to Kenya, um, I was in the process of getting married. And so as with you know any Indian family, uh, my fiancé, my mom and I went off to India to do the shopping for this great big Indian wedding that lasts over a week or so. Uh, and so in India, we visited the fantastic little uh, uh, national park called Kioladio National Park in Bharatpur, where I was familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Vibhu Prakash, who had done a lot of work there. And Vibhu was very kind enough to meet us at the train station, you know, take us to Kilalio, show us his study area and everything. Uh, a fantastic place with thousands and thousands of birds. And he said, Munir, you know, one of the things we're noticing here is that these vultures have completely disappeared. And we just, we just don't know what's happening. And so we, I kept that at the back of my mind, you know, came back to Kenya uh, went through the whole wedding process. And, you know, two weeks after the wedding, uh, Rick Watson, who's our current CEO and president, phones me up. Uh, remember, I'm just married two weeks, moved into an apartment, no furniture, nothing. And he says, how would you like to go to India to start, you know, do a fact-finding mission on these vultures? Because, um, you know, there's there appears to be a problem. And so, you know, with India being very close to Kenya, only five hours away, and the ability to speak the Indi- you know Hindi and Gujarati and the Indian languages there, I jumped at it, and so off I went to India to understand what the problem with these vultures were. And you know the background is that vultures were falling out of the skies, and their numbers had declined by over ninety nine percent in a very short period of time in the mid nineteen nineties. Um. And so, you know, here I was in Bombay at the headquarters of the Bombay Natural History Society with, again, all these legendary raptor biologists there, you know, Dr. Asad Ramani and Dr. Vibha Prakash and everybody there. Uh, And, you know, we, the Peregrine Fund wanted, I guess, to understand whether we had a role to play, you know, given our role in saving the Peregrine Falcon and, you know, working with the Mauritius Kestrel and California Condors. So, I had the opportunity to travel all across the Indian subcontinent, travel into the northern parts, into Rajasthan, into West Bengal, and the patterns were very similar. There were dead vultures hanging off the trees in very good body condition, and we just didn't know what the problem was. And so, you know, I came back to the Peregrine Fund headquarters in Boise. I reported that to my colleagues, and we put a plan together. You know, uh, Dr. Rick Watson, Uh, who was then the International Programs Director, along with the late Dr. Lindsay Oaks, who we worked with, a tremendous uh, virologist at Pullman's Washington State University. Uh, We put a plan together to set up field and diagnostic investigations in India, in Nepal and Pakistan to understand, you know, what the cause of mortality was. Uh, It became evident to us that it would, that because of the laws and the bureaucracy that surrounded the export of tissue samples in India, uh, our work was made much easier when we focused it in Pakistan, uh, just because uh, there were still a good number, there was still a healthy number of vultures that were there, um, but they were still dying at an alarming rate. So we were finding a lot of dead vultures. And so we worked with the Ornithological Society of Pakistan as our in-country partners, we found these five amazing students to do the field work uh, in the Punjab province of Pakistan, where they counted numbers of nests along these canals, but also collected dead birds and those birds that were in good body condition to collect tissue samples. This was in the early part of 2000. By by 2003, just to give you an example, the population of our numbers of nests went from over two and a half thousand to just under 30 breeding pairs. And that just gives you the scale of how catastrophic this decline was. What we were finding was that all these birds were dying of uh, kidney failure. And we determined that because as we cut open these birds for a necropsy, their, their body organs, the heart, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys, were covered in this white chalky paste, which is uric acid. So birds of prey, like vultures, they excrete uric acid as opposed to uh, mammals that excrete urea. And so this uric acid was precipitating through their kidneys and killing them. And that was what was causing the decline. And so we needed to find, you know, what was causing that kidney failure in the first place. So we started to do a more in-depth forensic study to look at all the other factors and it became evident to us that whatever the vultures were dying of was something they were probably getting from their food and their main source of food was carrion in the form of dead livestock. So we started doing surveys with, uh, with the farming community, you know, with livestock farmers and everybody to look for, you know, what they were giving their livestock, particularly cattle, Something that was readily available over the counter, very cheap and ubiquitous. And so this non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug called diclofenac really stood out. And so when we looked in and when we started to send these um, tissue samples, which were very limited, by the way, to the labs for analysis, uh, all our samples of those birds that had kidney failure came back positive for diclofenac. And that's when we figured it out.
1: Fascinating, fascinating work, right? And uh, it is, it's like, like just, just the mystery of it is, you know, I mean, it it, like for us looking back, right. And it's like, oh, of course it's diclofenac. It all makes sense. All the puzzle pieces connect. Right. But like to just imagine like being in that moment and, and being a part of that research team and having vulture populations across the board, just completely collapsing and having no idea what was going on. It's just a, a, amazing work that um, that you and and obviously lots of other people and, and this whole team and all these partners did um, to uncover that. I mean, it, it's also an interesting conservation question in that this was unintentional, right? Nobody was trying to kill vultures. So, I mean, once it was identified that this drug, that Clofnac, was the source of the problem for vultures, you know, what, what, what happened next, right? Because obviously then there's like all these other layers of complexity involved in like, how do you stop
0: the use of this drug, right? Yeah. So, you know, once we had that Eureka moment uh, for diclofenac being the main culprit in the vulture mortalities, you know, we obviously had to prove it. So we had to do a series of experiments uh, where we had to inject diclofenac in a, you know, in a buffalo and then feed the the tissue to unreleasable vultures, you know, that we had collected over time. Uh, and then we had to publish this in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. We published our work in nature. Um, but then we had to do something about it. And so we, our first step was to mobilize the government officials in charge of wildlife in each of the three countries. Because, you know, these vultures fly from country to country. They don't recognize political boundaries. And because of the tension between India and Pakistan at that time, uh, which was quite crazy... We organized a summit meeting in Kathmandu, in Nepal. So it was easy to get these officials to Nepal, um, where we presented our results. And we unequivocally told them that if you don't do something about this veterinary drug, all your vultures are going to die. And so we invited some of our partners as well. There was the RSPB, the Bombay Natural History Societies. There was WWF. And to their credit, you know, they went on to the respective countries and started very strong lobbying and advocacy work uh, through some of their partners, you know, all across the continent. And by 2006, so we discovered diclofenac in 2003, and by 2006, veterinary diclofenac was banned for veterinary use. Um, And so a big part of our work at that time, uh, the Peregrine Fund's work, was to continue monitoring populations of these vultures you know essentially there were three species of vultures that were affected by uh, this drug it was the oriental white rumped vulture the indian vulture and the slender billed vulture um and so we start you know we continued monitoring these birds to see whether the ban is having any effect and you know as predictable the once the drug was banned from 2006 onwards a lot of these breeding populations started to stabilize and by 2011, 2012, in some places the breeding numbers actually started going up. So that was a huge feather in our cap and a great success story for vulture conservation. But what I'd like to add over here is that, you know, one of the greatest positives for the Asian vulture crisis was that it mobilized vulture biologists all across the African continent because they didn't want something similar going on in Africa. Because if you can imagine the disappearance of vultures in Africa where you've got you know, herds of elephant and migratory wildebeest and cob and all sorts of tremendous animals, the consequences would be dire. So it brought vulture biologists across Africa together to start talking about the problem. You know there were multiple conferences and summit meetings that actually got biologists um, together to, to hatch out a conservation action plan. First of all, diclofenac wasn't a problem in Africa, but what they found out was well, there were multiple you know there was a, a suite of multiple problems affecting vultures In South Africa, for example. It was the trade of vulture body parts, you know, for the black magic market. Uh, uh, Sentinel poisoning, for example, where poachers would kill rhino or elephant and then just, you know, pour the entire carcass with poison so that the vultures don't give away the telltale signs to authorities. And so, you know, one poisoning event would kill close to 500 vultures. In East Africa, human-wildlife conflict is a big issue where... You know pastoral communities lose their livestock to predators like lions, hyenas, and leopards. And so because they're not compensated, uh, they want to take the law into their own hands. And so they would just you know try to poison the predator, but in the process they would kill you know tens of hundreds of vultures. And then of course, in West Africa, you've got the the, the trade of vultures for the fetish market as well uh, for vulture body parts. And so these multiple issues across the African continent has kind of brought what is now known as the African vulture crisis, which is far more severe than what's happening in, you know, with vultures in India. That was only one problem with diclofenac, which, you know, was nipped just in, you know, just in time. Uh, What Africa is facing in terms of vulture conservation is a tremendous effort and a challenge. But, you know, there are a great number of biologists and organizations that are working in Africa to solve this problem.
1: You're involved in, in many different aspects of this issue, but I also know that you're specifically involved you know, in East Africa in, in you know, finding ways to address these, um, or to prevent these mass poisoning events of vultures. Like, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about you know, some of the programs that you'd, you've helped initiate working in collaboration with the Maasai people.
0: Yeah. um, So we started our work in the Maasai Mara, which is, you know, that's the center for the the migratory wildebeest. Every year you get a million and a half wildebeest that migrate from the Serengeti in Tanzania to the Maasai Mara in northern Kenya. Uh, And, you know, when the wildebeest are there, there's food aplenty for lions and leopards and hyenas. But once the wildebeest go back and the rains start to come, um, these predators you know, almost invariably will go and take livestock. And the Maasai are, you know, a great group of people. You know, they're very proud of their heritage and their culture. And uh, they consider their livestock as their main source of wealth. Um, and so, you know, with human wildlife conflict and the land use changes that are taking place in Kenya, uh, predators will take their livestock. And so when they lose livestock, you know, they will they want to poison they want to get rid of the problem. Um, and as a result, hundreds of vultures will die because they will feed on a, on a poisoned carcass. So we started addressing this problem first by doing some you know cutting-edge research. We wanted to identify where the poisoning hotspots were. Um, but most importantly, and I think this is across the board for every conservation project across the globe, is to get and inspire and engage with the local communities. Because without their endorsement, you know, without their support, there's nothing you can do. So we developed capacity. You know, we provided hands-on training for a number of Maasai graduate students. Uh, Eric Olerazon, for example, is a, is a tremendous champion. The Peregrine Fund provided support for his graduate study where he got a degree in wildlife management uh, from Clemson University. He's currently doing a PhD study. And, you know, there are a number of other Maasai um, exceptionally young gentlemen um, and women that we're supporting. And these have become the voices for vultures and conservation in, in, in Maasai land. So we have developed a network of uh, what we're calling vulture protectors across the whole southern Kenya landscape, where we're providing these people with the tools uh, and the training that is required to respond to poisoning. So let's face it, poisoning is never going to stop, Right. What our strategy is, is to reduce the number of poisonings and respond at these poisoning incidences as fast as possible. So, and and that is to reduce, you know, the, the carnage. So it's better, you know, how we see it, you know, if one or two vultures are dead at a site, that's better than having 500 dead. And so, the vulture protectors, through their network, you know, through a, a, a WhatsApp group, through mobile cell phones, we have about 150 of them. They're all connected with we, with each other, and now I can guarantee you, there's not a single animal that drops dead without them knowing it. So they respond to it, they bury it, or they burn the carcass, uh, and we're, you know, and and we're very proud to say that we have you know, over the last five years. We have, you know, based on their efforts, these vulture protectors have substantially reduced the number of poisonings. Um, And just to give you an example, you know, 10 years ago, Dr. Corinne Kendall, who we worked with in the Masai Mara, she had placed 16 transmitters on 16 vultures. And within the first nine months, five had died of poisoning. And that is an annual mortality rate of one in every three vultures, which is just not sustainable. We're able to, right now, we have brought that number down to just, just close to 5%. So it's still a problem, but we're working very hard through an education program, through a capacity building program, through our partnerships with Nature Kenya and BirdLife International and others in the field. Um, you know, I, I, the Peregrine Fund is a very strong believer, believer in collaborative conservation efforts. And that really is the future for conservation, is developing partnerships, and developing trust, especially with indigenous communities, to achieve conservation goals.
1: That is such a dramatic improvement over a relatively short period of time. To go just within 10 years to have such a dramatic reduction in mortality rates for vultures is amazing, especially when you consider the level of complexity of these issues. You know, we often talk about conservation issues as if they're strictly science questions. But they're not. This is about this is about society and culture, and it's also just really amazing to hear you talk about the collaborative approach and the approach of working really closely with the Maasai and with other indigenous communities, and how that is really is the path forward for conservation. Um, is trust building right? I mean, I, I wonder though what difficulties you and other team members encountered along that path of building trust with maasai communities and other indigenous communities in the area right just because there is this history of mistrust i mean i know in certain examples with the maasai specifically but also just much more broadly between indigenous communities and conservation organizations there's a long history of
0: um mistrust yeah, I mean, you know, I think it stems from understanding the roots of this, because you know, if, you look at, if you look at the history of Africa, for example, you know, from pre-colonial times, I mean, you had, you know, you had, for example, in Kenya and Uganda, it was run, you know, it was colonized by Great Britain, right? You look at Tanzania, it was colonized by Germany. You look at Ethiopia, it was colonized by Italians. So you've got these groups of people coming in post-independence, pretty much telling the people there, this is how you should do it now, right? And so that brought in a lot of conflict, brought in a lot of mistrust. Um, and then even as you look at you know 20 years past independence, where you've got these conservation organizations coming in To say we are going to educate you we are going to show you the way we're going to show you the way forward yet you look at a country like great britain and you know virtually all the wildlife is gone and so it, it it's very it became very clear over time that you know you've got these groups coming in they stay one or two years and then they disappear they've got all this donor funding they come for one or two years and they they disappear what we have learned you know the peregrine fund's 50 years footprint that we have in conservation is that the secret or at least you know at least one of the the recipes or key ingredients for achieving conservation is to empower the local community and that has been the philosophy of the peregrine fund wherever we have worked in madagascar in africa in panama's darien province Uh, you know, in, in the Dominican Republic, wherever we have worked across the globe, is to empower and build capacity so that these people can then take responsibility for being the custodians for conservation. And that really is the secret. And that's, I think that's the reason why we have been so successful in that we have, you know, we have over time gone in there not with the intention that we want to do this. No, we have gone in there with the intention that, you know, Look at us as a resource. We're a catalyst for conservation. What can we do to add value to the work that you're already doing? So you need capacity building. You know, we have some resources that we can help you in. So we build their capacity, provide them with the tools, you know, to get good scientific knowledge, to get, you know, to get the training they, they require, to get the resources they need so that they can make informed scientific and conservation decisions. Um, and that's why I think we have been very, very successful. To give you a sense, you know, in Madagascar, we now have supported more than 36 graduate students over there. And all of them are doing fantastic conservation work. In East Africa, we have more than 25 graduate students that we have supported. And all of them, you know, some of them have continued to stay and worked for us, but others have gone in the fields of, you know, um, and environmental policy. Others have looked, you know, gone into geothermal engineering, for example. Um, but that's, you know, that's why the Peregrine Fund is so proud of what we do. Is that we are very sincere and committed in investing in conservation leadership around the world.
1: You relatively recently became. The executive vice president of the Peregrine Funds. Um, you moved here to Boise, Idaho, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. What are the new responsibilities associated with um, with this position, and what are you sort of bringing to the organization by, like, physically moving here to uh, Boise, Idaho, where the Peregrine Fund is based?
0: Well, you know, I must say it has been a it has been a tremendously rewarding experience moving to Boise. Uh, you know, I've known Boise for the last uh, I want to say nearly. Twenty-five years or so. I made my first trip here in nineteen ninety-six. Uh, the Peregrine Fund. You know, we're unique in the sense that we're, you know, we're like we're like an extended family, right? Uh, we, you know, we we feed on each other's energies and passion, given the work that we do around the world. I've been coming here every year for the last twenty years or so uh, for our annual planning meetings, for our board meetings and just energized by all the work that my colleagues do in different parts of the world and here in the United States as well. I moved here primarily to play, you know, a more architectural role within the organization. Um, Some of the other projects that I'm working on right now is I oversee our work in the Darien forest in Panama, where our project director, Jose Vargas, has built trust with the Embera and the Wunan communities in these forest there, where our focus has been on the conservation of the harpy eagle. Uh, you know, the, the Darien Forest is one of the last strongholds of uh, harpy eagle occurrence in, in the rainforests of Central America. And so we've been focusing our attention over that. Um, I also oversee some of the, the uh, other global projects. So, you know, we have a fantastic project on the critically endangered Ridgeway's hawk in the Dominican Republic, where you know, our our colleagues over there have just done an amazing job through assisted dispersals to increase their numbers from, you know, 100 pairs to now nearly, you know, that number has doubled. Uh, and this is, again, you have to remember this is very intensive conservation management work uh, that's, that's, that's taking place. Uh, we, you know, over the next 50 years, we have, you know, we have a strategic plan. We have a Vision 2050. Uh, there are nearly 586 species of birds of prey around the world that includes owls and we're working you know we're working on a good number of those but there are a great number of those birds that need our attention uh some of the fastest declining species of birds of prey are those that are listed as least concern uh they just don't have any conservation status right uh, a lot of owls in Southeast Asia. There are species in Southeast Asian islands uh, that need our attention. And so, you know, our plan is to continue developing capacity in other parts of the world, empower champions there through our conservation leadership program, and get them to you know organize um, small nonprofits or or conservation organizations that we can then kind of be the big brother and mentor. Uh, to provide them with the tools and empower them to achieve conservation goals.
1: I wonder if we can wrap up with an update on the Indian vulture crisis. You talked about the speed at which governments banned diclofenac and about how you were starting to see populations begin to recover. But obviously, when we're talking about a 99% decline, like that's a long recovery period, right?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. Um, you know, I'm I'm very proud to say that you know we've come a long way since the ban on veterinary diclofenac. Uh, through our partners, the RSPB and the Bombay Natural History Society, now there's a consortium known as Save, S-A-V-E, which is saving Asia's vultures from extinction. And that is this is run by various organisations. That's organisation-driven, consisting 24 organisations that includes. Uh, you know, uh, the countries of India, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Cambodia, all within the Indian subcontinent. There is an action plan. There is a breeding facility where they're now putting vultures back and tracking their movements. Um, so, I, you know, we're not out of the woods as yet because there are new drugs coming to the market that may prove fatal for these birds. But I have to say that, you know, the light is there at the end of the tunnel. And I'm cautiously optimistic about the future of vultures. Again, you have to remember that in the early 70s, you know, the millions of vultures that were there at that time were artificially inflated because of this huge food resource. You know, the the Indian people, because of their Hindu background, consider the cow as a sacred animal. So, you know, cows piled up when they died. And so as they did, also vulture numbers piled up. We don't want to go to the 1970 numbers of vultures. You know, I think think the future is good for vultures given the SAVE consortium and the action plan that they have. Uh, But as I said, you know, there are other species in that part of the world that now require our attention. Um, There are other problems as well. You know, you've got wind energy coming up that's taking up landscapes across Africa and Asia. So we need to keep our focus on that. we are very proud to have a GRIN program, which is the Global Raptor Impact Network, which basically, you know, we have a fantastic team of people led by, led by Dr. Chris McClure. And the whole objective is to keep our fingers on the pulse of these, of these species across the globe. So, you know, I think in terms of cutting edge technology, you know, we are, you know, we are really in the driver's seat. And our role as the Peregrine Fund as a global raptor organization is to empower and provide tools to people around the world. Look at us as where we can add value to the great work you're already doing.
1: Our next episode of Earth to Humans comes from producer Hannah Mulvaney. Here's a preview of what she has in store for us in this next episode.
2: I wanted to celebrate an amazing conservation organisation who were working in a place that I visited many moons ago, which completely changed my life. But where is that place? Here's some clues. It's the world's third largest island behind Greenland and Guinea. It has the world's oldest rainforest, estimated to be around 130 million years old. It is one of the world's most biodiverse places being home to an estimated 15,000 plant species. Have you guessed yet? Maybe I should say a more obvious fact. It's home to a certain ginger primate species whose name in the local language means man of the forest. This episode proves that by pairing humanitarian and environmental causes, everyone can be a winner. Subscribe to the Earth to Humans podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. See you on Wednesday.
1: Thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode with Munir Varani. Don't forget to check out our show notes page to learn more about Munir's work and to check out the preview of the animated series Chronicles of the Curious that will feature Munir's story. Show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org eth225 or go to chroniclesofthecurious.org. And if you just can't get enough of Munir, we have bonus content from this episode up on our Patreon campaign at patreon.com wildlenscollective. With a small recurring donation, you can help provide the resources that allow us to keep bringing you high quality content like today's interview with Munir. We also wanted to say thank you to Arlie, one of our new subscribers to the show who left us this amazing message. Loved last week's episode with the Podolsky family. Even though childhood climate conversation is complicated, I do think it's really great that we're having it in the first place. Really appreciated such a thought-provoking discussion. Thank you, Arlie, for that message. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or ideas about what we're doing here at Earth to Humans, don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach us via email at earthtohumans at org. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. Today's episode was produced by me, Matt Podolsky. Our senior producer is Serena Simons. The music in today's episode was written and recorded by Wildlands Collective member Greg Willis, and our intro segment was edited by Collective member Jason Milligan.